Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, welcome, Mark, to another of our episodes of Ortho Joe. I have got my little cup here, and hopefully you're enjoying a little bit of Cup of Java. And we have a guest, I'm sure, will hopefully uh, be able to uh, share some uh, insights today with us. But um, just to remind everybody, uh, this session today is uh, uh, highlighting um, a colleague, uh, collaborator, and friend of ours, uh, Dr. P.J. Devereaux. And P.J. Devereaux is the uh, professor at McMaster University and also heads the perioperative medicine division at McMaster University um, and has been doing quite a bit of innovative uh, work in this area, Mark. Uh, first of all, welcome, P.J. Pleasure to be with you here today. <laughs> so let me just start off, if I could. Uh, at Ortho Evidence, we have um, about a year ago, put out a surgical protocols uh, for COVID-19, thinking that we wouldn't be once again addressing those same protocols one year later. But here we are in many parts of the world, uh, Mark and PJ, with a you know third wave upon us. And with surgical uh, care, once again, uh, cut back significantly, particularly in orthopedic surgery. And we're really at this point, once again, looking for opportunities in which we can optimize, you know, the safety and also the care of patients, both intraoperatively and especially postoperatively, where hospital access is becoming more and more a challenge. So I refer you to um, a paper and ortho evidence that we did, and we'll make sure that we get that link out to everyone mm -hmm. called Surgical Protocols for COVID-19. And I know, Mark, you probably also have um, some references from JBGS that you'll want to share uh, as well. I don't know if you want to do that now, or we can certainly go into our discussion with PJ. Yeah, I, I think we'll get started with what PJ is working on, and, and then we can uh, talk about orthopedic rehabilitation a little bit farther down the conversation. Sounds great. So PJ, yeah. uh, you've been doing uh, lots of thinking on this particular area about how do we monitor patients after they leave, um, let's say the orthopedic surgical suite. Uh, can you give us some insights uh, as to some of the progress you're making and where you think the future is going to take us in this area? Thanks. I'm delighted to talk about it. It's uh, really interesting. I think important area, and although none of us would wish COVID, um, I do think that COVID has helped us to rethink how we might think about the future, even post-COVID, to improve care for our patients. Throughout the last year, I think it's been universally the case that people have been pushed to get patients out of the hospital faster after surgery. This had already been happening for a while, but it's been accelerated. And understandably, we don't want patients in the hospital where there's a higher risk of COVID being contracted. So there's an upside to trying to get people out. The other reality is most people would rather be in their home, even at a minimum for the food. They'd rather get home, be in their own environment, uh, be taken care of. At the same time, we do confront a problem that if you look at ER visits or hospital readmission rates, they are very substantial. So if you look in a global context, anyone age 40 or greater having surgery in America, 7% um, of those patients having a major surgery will be readmitted in a 30-day period. I predict that will likely grow if we don't change the structure because if we send people home sooner, you're just gonna make patients more vulnerable to need to come back. So we have to rethink, how do we make this a safer process? Because there's benefits to getting home sooner. 
but we have to change the structure that'll make that safer. And where we've been spending a lot of our time and energy the last couple of years is on virtual care, along with remote automated monitoring technologies. And I think that in te people tend to, and understandably, we all believe in technology and it's gonna be the answers to our problems. And we believe that because every day we use technologies that have made our life clearly much better. However, one of the points that I wanna make as a really crucial issue that I see in this area is that if we do not put in place the measures that with this technology that'll allow you to identify the problems and then have a clear path of who's going to address the problem and change care, if you ultimately do not change care, you will not change outcome. And so that's why it's very important to think through carefully of how do you put that structure in place to make sure you can have that outcome. Now I can share with you, we've done now a couple of randomized control trials on this topic and we have one that looks like it's just about to be published. What I can share with you during COVID, when we were, we've done now one trial, we're about to start another trial during COVID on, trans, um, on tra tra transitional care from the hospital to home for surgical patients. And we've been focusing on the urgent emergent type of patients. So hip fractures will be the big group for orthopedics. Yeah. And in that group, one of the things I was nervous about with the first trial, because we were estimating the event rate of ER visits or hospital readmissions was based upon pre-COVID data. And obviously we have overwhelming data that people during COVID have been much more resistant to come back to the hospital. So I was nervous that in fact, our event rates would be lower than the pre-COVID data suggested it was. In fact, it's been the opposite. And I think it's the opposite because we are just sending people home sooner without the right support structures. Without the right support structures, we've seen across Canada in our research right now, with again, including hip fracture patients, 27% of patients coming back to the emergency room of which essentially half get readmitted to the hospital in the first 30 days after surgery. We've also identified in our research that when people go home, 30% of patients have a drug error, and on average, they have two drug errors. We also demonstrate that if you look at um, moderate to severe pain at um, seven days after surgery, 37% um, have moderate severe pain at 15 days, 27%, and at 30 days, 20%. Again, we can do a lot better, and this highlights the issues that confront us but again, I do believe that the virtual care with the remote monitoring technology, as long as you have a physician group and nurse group that is managing that with clear pathways of who's going to manage it, I think you can change that. And I'd be happy to get into some of the discussion about how does that functionally work. So PJ, let, let me just ask for clarification, just so I get this right. Um, so what you're saying is you can provide uh, patients with a an app where they can enter their symptoms or their, their drug utilization or whatever. But you're saying you've got to have the systems to monitor that in place. Who's responsible for reviewing that feedback and taking action on it? Is, is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's, and it's also a key part of it is the timely nature of it. The reality is if patients don't hear back from someone and don't have someone address their problem in a matter of hours, some of those patients are just gonna come back to an emergency department. So you need a clear pathway of who's going to address it, but it also has to be that it's timely. So in many ways, like, you know, what we're trying to do here in Hamilton and Moat as part of it is that we're creating, an, we've created this new division of perioperative care. And an important point I want to be clear about 
of where I see this going is that it's following the model of intensive care that ideally we want surgeons to be part of it. We want people from anesthesia to be part of it and people come from medical disciplines to be part of it. Now, I recognize that not all surgeons are going to want to be part of it, not all anesthetists and not all people in medicine, but similar to ICU, people who have an interest in that transitional care, but also medical care, we want to bring different expertise to be part of this, but it needs to be on a daily basis. We do it on a weekly basis in Hamilton, where I'm on for the week, where there's no ambiguity. I'm the one who's available 24 hours a day, working with a nurse who will address the patient's problems. And I can share some cases from our trial that I think just highlight, obviously, to people what can actually happen and how, how they would probably want this for their loved ones. Well, you know, PJ, I was going to jump in and say, you know, in the work you've done, do you believe you've actually saved lives, even with some of the pilot and early work you have from the data? Yeah, well, let me share a case and you tell me, um, but I think this case highlights the potential even to save lives. So in this last trial that we have, that hopefully will be out very soon, we were randomizing patients during COVID who had had urgent emergent surgeries. And at the time of discharge, they were randomized to normal follow-up. Um, which ended up being that about 75% of patients saw a physician in the next 30 days, or they had normal follow-up, but also our virtual care and RAM technology and a pathway of how they're going to be managed. So the first patient we ended up randomizing was at a hospital in Hamilton here. It's an elderly gentleman who had cardiac surgery. And the first day when he went home, his vital signs, which they do three times a day, so we give them the technology very simple, they put a cuff on, hit a button, it measures blood pressure, heart rate, they put a SAT monitor on, and it's automatically uploaded onto the tablet we give them, and then within seconds, the nurse has it, and we set parameters which will then alert the nurse if it's below thresholds that we've set, and then timelines in which the nurse has to contact the patient and then contact the physician. So in this patient, the first day they go home, their vital signs look great, they interact with the nurse, they're doing well, everything looks good. The next morning, early in the morning, the nurse gets an alert on her overall flow sheet saying this patient's uh, heart rate is 32 beats per minute. The nurse then immediately contacts back to the patient and the patient's elderly wife answers the tablet. And these tablets, they're simple to use, but they give virtual contact. So as soon as the patient hits the button, they're virtually seeing the nurse and the nurse is seeing the patient. The elderly wife answers and she says, look, um, dear, my husband is exhausted today. For the sake of the program, we did the vitals once, but he's asked me to let him sleep and rest throughout the day. And we're going to resume the program tomorrow, but he doesn't want to be disturbed. And I'm going to let him sleep. And so the nurse said, okay, I really would like to see him. She said, no, I'm going to let him sleep. So the nurse then accelerated the care to the physician who was on. The physician who was on also able to virtually contact with the with the with the wife again, insists on seeing the patient. And on seeing the patient, it's obvious to the physician that the patient is not simply tired, but has decreased level of consciousness. Organizes an ambulance, patient brought to the hospital, incomplete heart block, emergency pacemaker. Now, again, it's possible the patient's alive a day later and the wife recognizes this is not going well and calls an ambulance on her own. But at the same time, I think all of us hearing that case, if that was our loved one, we certainly would be very happy to know that that structure was in place, which credibly saved that patient's life. I'm not saying, I mean, obviously that's a minority of cases, but we have direct cases where you look at it and say to yourself, as a healthcare provider, that certainly seems like a clear win for that patient. 
PJ, what do you look at this? I mean, you know, when you're on this earlier phase, that, that, you know, sort of the phase of innovation and moving in this direction, COVID, as you said, has certainly accelerated, you know, orthopedics and many other surgical subspecialties to adopt newer technologies. How quickly do you see this becoming a potential standard or can it become a potential standard of care? Yeah, I, I believe it can become a potential standard of care. And I think that with COVID, there's some centers that are going to start this and just realize that this is the way forward. There's still a number of economic issues that we have to work out, and I can get into discussions about those. But what I do think is that I also think we can likely send patients home sooner, but safer. So in other words, we have to think through that there's no doubt the technology and the support costs money. But if we could save a day or a day and a half on most hospital admissions because we transition people home and we could decrease ER visits and readmissions by 50%, that's a big savings, which could then offset the cost of the technology. The other thing I should point out, the technologies I'm talking about are all reusable. Um, so the, you get them back and you can use them on the next patient. So we're not talking about a big expense at an overall patient level for the technology. The technology in the end ends up being quite cheap. It's the support for the technology. The other thing I just say is that where we're moving to with our research on the technology is that right now the technology is such that the patient, it's intermittent. Patient puts on the blood pressure cuff or the oxygen saturation, does it three times a day, hits a button and it uploads to the system. Um, where we're moving to though is technology that will give you continuous non-invasive blood pressure, five lead ECG, heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, temperature. And I think once we move to the continuous non-invasive monitoring, we will need less personnel support because it'll become so much better at identifying patients that are in a trajectory that they're gonna get into trouble or they're actually doing okay. The real cost is the personnel. And if we can decrease that through better technology, which I believe we can, I think that this in fact, not only becomes cost neutral, I think it has the potential to be cost savings because the cost of hospital days ER visits and readmissions are so expensive. Yeah, it, uh, PJ, I would just want to jump in here on uh, less life and uh, death applications of uh, technology. I, I, as I'm inclined to do, I always do a search right before the next ortho, Joe, and we published this in uh, 2019, which is an RCT looking at a virtual exercise rehabilitation uh, after total knee arthroplasty uh, out of UNC and Duke. And this was uh, a randomized trial of uh, 306 patients, and the intervention was an avatar, uh, which is a, a digital simulated coach, uh, three-dimensional biometrics, and telerehabilitation with remote clinician oversight by a physician, a physical therapist. And the, the results are, are fairly remarkable, uh, a cost savings of over $1,700 per patient with equivalent uh, functional outcomes and lower readmissions to the hospital. So um, this type of technologic approach certainly works better for rehabilitation uh, as well as uh, saving lives and preventing readmissions. Yeah, and, and I would, I would um, advocate, Mark, that we wanna build those things in so that our group is focusing on the bigger medical issues, but it is equally important when we talk about an orthopedic group that it would be built in the rehabilitation side of this. And both those things can be done simultaneously with this type of approach. And I think we wanna develop physician groups and nurses groups 
that are focused on perioperative and transitional care who know how to use those processes and how to help patients to do the optimal rehabilitation and make sure we don't have major problems. And as I said, if we have 30% of people with drug errors, we have lots of people with pain, we have a lot of people coming back to emerge, getting readmitted, identifying problems early, correcting them before they become major issues, ensuring the right rehab is happening. It has enormous potential. And I'd also argue that even if it did cost some money, there's things that we're all willing to pay for for some money. And let me share another case that maybe highlights this point where I don't think we saved a life, but I think most of us would argue if this was our loved one, this is what we'd want to see happen. So during the last trial, one of the weeks that I was covering for the perioperative care service, on a Saturday night, I get a call from the nurse at nine o'clock at night saying that there was a patient who had a urological procedure in Hamilton um, two days previously, um, or had been discharged two days now, so he had it like four days previously. And this patient lives in Niagara Falls. Now, for people not familiar with our geography, that's about an hour's drive between Niagara Falls and Hamilton, roughly. And um, it's nine o'clock at night. The patient had contacted the nurse saying the patient had terrible flank pain. And so within, you know, 10 minutes of the patient calling the nurse, the nurse calling me, I'm virtually now connected to this patient in the patient's home. And when I talk to the patient, the patient confirms they've got nine to 10 flank pain. The patient in questioning confirms they have dysuria, they have frequency, and I'm able to make a diagnosis of UTI presumed pyelonephritis. I get the patient's pharmacist phone number. I phone, I order antibiotics and pain medication that are delivered to the patient. The patient never left his home. And the patient, I then ordered um, an outpatient lab that he can go the following day to do a urinalysis. Now, in this patient, I think most of us hearing that would think, okay, that was in a span of 30 minutes, this patient's been addressed in its home setting on a Saturday night at you know 9 to 9.30 at night. What was the alternative if the patient wasn't in the trial, in the, in the intervention group? Well, the patient could go to a hospital in Niagara Falls where he didn't have his surgery and almost for certain wait two to three hours in the emergency room before they're seen, seen, do a urinalysis. They're probably not getting out of the emergency room till two or three in the morning with a prescription for some antibiotics. Or the patient drives an hour back to Hamilton and goes through the exact same process. And I think all of us hearing that, there's little ambiguity. What would you want for your loved one? Especially because we already knew the patient's story. We've been following this patient. We know the patient's full story. We know the medications are on. And we're able to address this in a very efficient way. So again, I think that, you know, there's the potential to save lives. There's a potential just for an enormous convenience um, and a much better experience for patients, an ability to prevent, you know, jamming up our emergency rooms and also preventing the readmissions. And the readmissions, certainly in a Canadian context, is a big deal because when that patient gets readmitted, that blocks another surgery. The reality is we've built into our system that we can only do so many surgeries because we know so many patients are coming back in the hospital who had surgery. If we can prevent those readmissions, we can now also make sure other people are getting timely access to surgery. And then that's even before getting into the point that you raised, Mark, which is another excellent part, which is not just saving lives, convenience, preventing, you know, allowing more surgeries to happen, is making sure they're getting the right rehab. And that's where I think that this virtual care with remote monitoring can go to 
And I, you know, I think this is the future in the same way that it's inconceivable for most of us today to consider having major surgery without an anesthesiologist. The reality was in the 1840s, there were zero anesthesiologists. And even though, you know, that's not that long ago in our history, yet the reality is, um, you know, today when we have care, we typically leave the hospital. And the problem is we don't have a good structural system that allows us. And I think we need a new discipline of perioperative care, which can help us to then transition people into the home setting and keep improving this overall process and outcomes for patients. Great. PJ, I can't I can't agree more with the you know, with the argument. I think you make a compelling argument uh, for us thinking in this direction. Really, really congratulate you on the work you've been doing, and I think all of us will be looking with a great degree of enthusiasm uh, for the work that's going to continue to come out um, in this area. So, uh, on a personal note, thank you very much for taking time to share with us uh, this information. If I could also just uh, for the listeners, uh, encourage you once again to, uh, if you have ideas, if, you, if, there's, if there's a burning issue and you want us uh, to address it, uh, please don't be shy. Send us a note. You can send it to us. And again, it's it's mail at orthojoe, correct, uh, Mark? Yeah, or, orthojoe at jbjs.org. Right, right. So orthojoe at jbgs.org. And, uh, or you can contact us directly if, if you know, if, if you know us, uh, if, it's, if, if you know us, just send us a note. But either way, get us information uh, so we can uh, move forward on this. Uh, I can't thank you enough, uh, PJ. Uh, Mark, as usual, it's been a, a lovely morning sharing a little bit of coffee with you. <laughs> and you get uh, my mic. Oh, yeah. And you'll, you'll get, get one, a PJ. <laughs> you'll get a book. You'll get a book. Um, and thank you all. Everyone have a great morning. Thanks so much. Thank you.